0: The Energy Gang is brought to you by Mission Solar Energy, a solar module manufacturer based in San Antonio, Texas. Mission Solar operates a 260-megawatt facility right here in the U.S. Through state-of-the-art engineering and outstanding quality, Mission Solar's modules, remember every one of which is made in their Texas facility, offer world-class performance and guaranteed long-term reliability. Visit Mission Solar at the upcoming Solar Power International Conference at Booth three nine seven five spi is coming right up and you should go talk to mission solar about their modules you can find out more about missions high power modules at missionsolar.com that's missionsolar.com from green tech media this is the energy gang a weekly digest on energy clean tech and the environment i'm Stephen Lacey in boston With America now a climate pariah on the global stage, cities around the country are stepping up their commitments to action. But are they just cheerleading rather than actually leading? Our guest this week tells the hard truth about why cities are not living up to their bold pronouncements, at least not yet anyway. Then a couple big business moves to talk about. NRG is selling off its renewable energy assets as part of a major restructuring plan. We'll tell you why. And AES partners with Siemens to beef up its utility-scale storage business. We'll take a look at the global storage arms race underway. I'm joined by Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, both in Washington D.C. Catherine's a partner with 38 North Solutions. How are you?
1: Great, and I got to see Jigger last weekend at the Folk Life Festival.
0: Yeah, it was fun. It was a circus, and I was missing from that picture. I got a couple worried text messages because I forgot to tell you both that I was going to be on vacation last week, and uh, it was nice of you to follow up. I said to my fiancé, uh, you know, if I do disappear, it's nice to know that I, I have uh, podcasting co-hosts and colleagues who will check up on me when I'm gone. I'll miss you when you're gone. <laughs> That's Jigger Shaw, the president of Generate Capital. How's it going? Good. It's been a while since we've had a guest on this show, so this week's guest uh is known by all of us we're thrilled to have him on he happens to also be in washington dc his name is sam brooks and he's a managing director at clear rock a firm that helps companies and institutions buy renewables he is uh, the former director of the dc government sustainability division and most recently he's the latest to stir the pot over at gtm he wrote a great piece for us a few weeks back on why cities are not actually leading on climate in the way they claim and He tapped into actual data and his experience in the D.C. government to argue his case, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Sam, welcome to the show. How are things?
2: Great. Stoked to be here.
0: Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to call you out. You know, I've known you for years now, and uh, we often talk about the subjects that we're discussing on the podcast, but you don't like listening to podcasts, right? You're not an audio fan. You you prefer to read the transcripts of the show.
2: Yes. I'm one of the folks that you got to subscribe to gtm squared to read the transcripts yeah i was (laughs) uh, i was actually telling my mom i was going to be on the podcast and it was really cool and she asked how she could listen and it occurred to me i actually have no idea how she could listen so uh maybe after this i'll finally get it together yeah it's still hand-to-hand combat
0: in the podcasting game we we, (laughs) we bring on one listener at a time so you cover a lot of ground in your recent op-ed over at gtm so to anyone who hasn't read it go to the show notes and check it out we'll post it there It's particularly relevant for a couple of reasons. One, after Trump pulled the US from the global climate deal, hundreds of cities around the country have stepped in with their own targets. It's a very positive development. And at the same time, we see more municipalities jump onto this 100% renewable energy bandwagon. And Sam argues that, at least as it stands now, cities have been really good at issuing press releases like this over the over the years but they haven't been very good at living up to their sustainability goals. So let's begin with the premise itself. In general how major is the disconnect Sam between what we hear in press releases about city climate and renewables goals versus what's actually happening on the ground?
2: Yeah I mean and I think you know every city now basically has signed on to the Paris Climate uh, Accords you know tons of them are making these renewable 100% renewable commitments um, you know, and it, it's worth saying, I think the city focus is well placed, right? Um, you know, cities and mayors and local officials are closer to people than, you know, folks in state and federal government. Um, and that's, you know, this is where things happen. Um, that's where you, you know, you see what, what incentive programs are working, what building codes are working, what's not. Um, and, you know, I've I've taken a, you know, an interest in the district. I served for a few years, you know, uh, directing our, our government real estate in the district. Um, and, you know, we did some good things. We did some things I wish we'd done better. Um, but while I was there, we did something, what we call the Sustainable DC Plan, uh, which is a 20-year plan, uh, among other things, a dramatic increase in energy efficiency uh, to reduce energy efficiency or reduce energy use uh, by 50%. Uh, and we're now five years into that. Um, and so I've become, you know, pretty focused on how we're doing as a city Tracking towards that 20 year plan. Um, And the track record is not good. Uh, Our energy use, uh, instead of tracking towards a 50% reduction, is essentially flat uh, a quarter of the way into this 20 year plan. Um, And, you know, as frustrated um, as I've gotten with the district, I think that kind of led me to say, all right, well, how are the other cities doing? Um, What does it look like, um, you know, in in these other leaders? Um, And as I started looking at the others, it was, you know, actually pretty surprising that, you know, the district wasn't um, an outlier. Um, The district was like most of them, Um, virtually all of the cities uh, that I looked at, and I looked at one kind of national ranking of the top, you know, most energy efficient cities, um, and all of them uh, essentially have seen either um, consumption rise uh, or stay flat, Uh, you know, distributed solar is essentially still a non-factor in most cities. Um, And I think maybe what's more stunning than anything else is, there's no data. Um, you know, you look at other cities and try to see how they're doing, um, and, and oftentimes there's no data to, to let you know. the The disconnect then uh, between the, you know, the, the signing of the Paris Accords and the 100% renewable commitments and and the reality of how they're doing um, is just you know striking. What's you know, I think maybe most surprising and most disappointing um, is that we're not actually looking at results and we're just looking at press releases um, and you know, I hope to hope to be, you know, a voice to, to start making us look at, you know, at actual results and actual data and, you know, and, and to see what's working, see what's not working and make course corrections um, and keep ch- chugging ahead. Uh, you know, it's not to say that these things aren't important, but it's important to to look at the, the history and the track record and the data and and, and see how we're doing.
1: So um, one of the articles that you cite and that you just mentioned was the 2017 ACEE City Scorecard. And one of the big things that they talk about is needing to track and um, address the data issue, ga- at least gather data so you have a baseline and you can measure what you're doing. So one new Wrinkle in this whole America's Pledge with Brown and Bloomberg, of course, that just came out is that um, Rocky Mountain Institute and World Resource Institute are both going to be doing um, analysis to make sure that they can quantify what all these cities are doing. Do you think that's a step in the right direction?
0: Before you answer that, I do want to provide a little bit more con- context. What Catherine is referring to is the America's Pledge, and that is hundreds of cities, um, a bunch of counties, nine states. Uh, over 1,500 businesses and investors who have all said, we're going to sign on to the Paris Climate Commitment, and they are actually talking about tracking this stuff now in a more comprehensive way. So finally doing what Sam says hasn't been done. Um, do you want to comment on that?
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously, certainly the data collection it, it is foundational to the whole thing. I do think it's important, though, to also recognize, you know, wh- what can cities do and what can't they do? Um, And I think as we we think about the goal setting, um, one is critical to have, you know, information about how we're doing tracking towards those goals, but also to have goals, you know, that cities actually have control, um, you know, to achieve. Uh, And when you're talking about, you know, carbon emissions generally, cities are a part of regional grids um, and and don't have all the levers, um, you know, to to move the needle. Uh, And so, you know, what you've seen in the last, say, five years is almost all cities have seen emissions go down. You know, in the district, I think we're down, like it's 17%. Um, congratulations, but that actually has nothing to do with what the city's done. It has to do with fuel switching, you know, in Pennsylvania and West Virginia. Um, and so I think it's also important to ensure that the goals um, that we're talking about and the goals that we're tracking with this data are goals that are, you know, pr- properly uh, aligned with what cities are doing. And I think what cities do you know, San Francisco had a report in 2011 called their, you know, the Renewable Energy Task Force. um, And they laid out three priorities. Energy efficiency is number one. Number two is distributed generation. And number three is, you know, community uh, choice aggregation. And if you look at those first two, you know, those are two metrics that, you know, I think deserve, um, you know, perhaps the most attention. Um, and, And that's where we can get very good data. We can get it on a almost real-time basis when we're talking about electricity consumption, you know, efficiency and, and electricity. Um, and so I'd love to see us have, you know, more than just that big macro metric of, you know, of GHG emissions, because, you know, that data typically is, is lagging by years. And it's also maybe not the best metric for a city. We've, we, you know, if cities aren't doing uh, everything and they count on efficiency and making huge gains, then they're really not, you know, they're, they're not making appropriate progress and, you know, and our, applause should be muted.
3: So DC has done some really interesting things. Um, you know, one of the things that I think they've done without telling anybody over the last 10 years is become one of the largest um, innovators in the car sharing and, you know, basically carless living space. I mean, don't you think that's something that they can control? And that's something I think they've done a fairly good job at, right?
2: Uh, definitely. And I always point to that, transportation being, you know, exhibit A uh, of how cities can and have made enormous progress. And I'd even take it back just generationally what the district has done, even though, you know, we all complain about Metro and I wish it was better. You know, our mass transit in the district, um, you know, is outstanding and, and millions of people ride it every day. And now what we've done in the last decade, moving away from kind of a car centered city, um, everything from, you know, I get around, I don't have a car. I have bike share, uh, Uber. And, you know, once in a while I use a zip car, um, and, and all those things happen because of city action. So I think, you know, the cities have shown, you know, the ability to make progress and, and transit's a, a great example. But, you know, the, the majority of emissions in the district come from buildings um, and electricity is is in fact the best barometer uh, and the biggest contributor. Uh, and that's the one where, you know, which I don't think we, we have appropriate uh, focus.
0: So let's talk about that a little bit more. And we'll give some examples of this in operation in D.C. When you worked at D.C. government, you were responsible for Procuring some renewables deals, making government buildings more efficient, running the green schools initiative, helping open up data on energy performance—you know, working on partnerships with folks doing um, like analytics on building energy use. But in talking to you over the years, it was really clear that you were incredibly passionate about your mission, but super frustrated by the lack of progress. Um, you know, what's an area in the built environment that you worked on? in d c where you saw the government maybe taking credit for an initiative that wasn't bringing results or where you just weren't getting movement
2: yeah, I mean when I within the first I think three months, we moved from fifty percent to a hundred percent renewable because we just bought more national wind wrecks um, and you know that was that was early days for me um, in the government, and I loved it. We got great press um, you know great national press we were the first government um, you know city uh, municipal entity to go one hundred percent renewable, but we didn 't do anything. you know we spent a few hundred thousand dollars uh, on national wind wrecks that you know had no impact on on create additional uh, renewable energy facilities and you know that that to me in fact was a turning point, point. and I think it was you know a few conversations and i they were with Shiger, uh, which was about all right what do we you know, what do we do to move to the next step and that you know for the district we you know signed long term pPAs and and actually created, um, you know, even on-site, you know, 12 megawatts of on-site solar. Uh, That actually had an impact. Um, Again, to move back to efficiency, um, and and that was an area where, you know, again, Jigger would pester pester me um, quite a bit, and appropriately so, um, because, you know, these things are incredibly difficult. And that's the thing that I think is missing from these, you know, um, lofty aspirational uh, press releases this is incredibly difficult work. And I only had, you know, we had about 5% of the city's um, load was in, you know, our portfolio and, and, and we made, you know, we made progress in a number of buildings and I wish we'd done more particularly with new construction, but man, it was hard. Uh, energy efficiency um, is is not as easy as it looks in a white paper where rational economic decisions uh, are controlling. This is This is very difficult. I think it's the hardest thing any city is ever going to do, is to make radical gains with energy efficiency. Uh, and there's no way around uh, no way around that.
3: So, um, I mean, I certainly agree with you. It's been 50 years since Amory Lovins' seminal paper in Foreign Affairs magazine, and it's just not clear to me that we've made that much progress. Sorry, 40 years. Um, I, I'd like to take the conversation in a completely different direction. I mean, cities, as you know, are really little microcosms of politics. And D.C. is no different. You had a very large um, political role in the previous administration. And, you know, part of this is actually prioritization. Right. I mean, it was clear to all of us who witnessed the fiasco that was the Pepco merger that, you know, Mira Bowser could give a rat's ass about negotiating for carbon reductions out of that negotiation. And so help me understand, you know, given that you really are an expert in politics in D.C., I mean, how do we get mayors and mayoral candidates to believe that this is really the, you know, one of the largest economic development opportunities in, that the city can undertake and that it's actually something that, you know, can bring a lot of folks in DC from ward seven and eight into meaningful employment and all the things that, you know, we believe, but it doesn't seem like they believe or they campaign on.
2: I, it is, um, you know, again, to, to just underscore I, about, Ten years ago, the city came to a screeching halt, as many do, when we discussed uh, the construction and financing of a new baseball stadium. Um, and for us, that was about seven hundred million dollars. And truly, the city for two years uh, kind of came to a halt as we debated um, this massive investment. And you know, the amount of money it's going to take, uh, you know, and the, as you say, the opportunity uh, and the market opportunity we have uh, for this transition to clean energy. Is many, many billions of dollars, um, and it's always, you know, just struck me that, um, you know, climate climate gets press releases, but it's never a priority, and it certainly doesn't, you know, grind a city to a halt uh, until, you know, they figure out the strategy and and, and make the hard decisions and commit to it, um, and, you know, that's that's what's been frustrating in the district, uh, but I think you see it everywhere, uh, is that you know, it, it, it's just not given the priority uh, that it deserves. I mean, I, you know, the the Conference of Mayors, um, you know, just there are a bunch of cities that just committed to 100% renewables uh, with, with the mayors when they were down in Miami uh, a few weeks ago. And, you know, they put together a bunch of beach chairs and made a sign on Miami Beach um, that said 100% renewables. Um, you know, that's that's. Great! I wish I'd been in South Beach. I love South Beach, but um, but this is much harder than putting together uh, beach chairs into a sign on South Beach. This is about creating, <laughs> you know, big time change and seri- you know, and completely recalibrating your energy infrastructure that's looked the same for a for a century. You know, dramatic, um, you know, uh, changes to the way that power is distributed uh, and the ways buildings consume energy. I mean, this is this is truly. Uh, the biggest thing, uh, you know, cities will ever do, and it's a lot bigger than building, you know, sports stadiums. Um, but it, it it gets a fraction of the attention and a fraction of the prioritization.
1: Yeah, and I would just say that. Um, we have to make sure that we do not give up on deep energy efficiency. Energy efficiency should always be the first fuel. It's the cheapest, quickest, cleanest thing to do. And I am um, certainly AC is constantly beating that drumbeat. But we need to continue to make sure that cities are looking at ways to con- to increase deep energy efficiency as they're looking at renewables, rather than you know counting renewables as just being. Efficient. Um, I know the European Council is considering reducing their energy efficiency goals. It's kind of this hidden number by between 80 and 100 um, percent because they've created all these loopholes to enable renewables to count as energy efficiency. And I just think we need to not give up on energy efficiency.
0: Yeah, that that deep energy efficiency is key and it's not being realized yet in cities, as you documented in your data set, Sam. And I think what is interesting about this is that organizations like ACEEE, which does do very important work on efficiency, many of their rankings, you know, for states or for cities, they're based on aspirational targets. So, like, if a city just issues a press release and say, hey, we want to be more efficient, we want to, you know, cut energy consumption 20% by 2030 or whatever the goal is, then they count that as the biggest factor in their rankings, not actual progress. And so when we talk about deep energy efficiency, it's still very much a concept that hasn't been realized in virtually any city around the country.
2: There's no data. In what universe uh, you know, are you tackling you know, the greatest uh, challenge and opportunity of our time, which is climate change. And then on the other hand, you have essentially no data and no feedback about your performance tracking towards that goal. But that's what's happening with energy efficiency in cities, um, certainly in the United States. Um, and, and, you know, the, the numbers from E are not good. I think it's only 12 of the 51 cities they're tracking have energy data for two or more years in most of the cities, even that have two or more years, we're talking about data from 2013 and 2014. I mean, in, in, in the real world with human beings, um, data that's that delayed, that's, that's, Um, You know, presented on an annual basis, has essentially no impact uh, on behavior. From one perspective, that means we're not even trying, uh, because if we're, you know, not getting that data, not looking at our performance, um, then we're not going to be able um, to look in the mirror and and say this isn't working. We need to change this. We need to course correct. Um, And I, you know, I just until we start getting that data, I think, you know, to the political question. Um, we 're not going to be able to hold officials accountable uh, because you know right now um, you know it's it 's who 's got the the newest shiniest pledge who's you know who 's done the best um, and most recent press conference we 're not ever talking about um, you know results and and, and data and, and performance, and so you know we need to get there but you know the district is is a great example we have smart meters in, i think ninety nine percent of uh, all facilities in the district of Columbia we could literally have. Uh, a near real-time look at how we're doing uh, with efficiency on electricity. Um, And yet, in order to get the data, uh, I go to, you know, the federal government's EIA um, and get, you know, annual uh, data uh, from there. And that's just, you know, that's not good enough. And I've got a, you know, a great example was, uh, you know, in a local uh, legislative hearing uh, about a a month ago, I went to testify. um, And and I brought up the fact, um, as I've started saying publicly, you know, Folks, this isn't working. We're five years into a 20-year plan to cut energy use in half. Uh, energy use is flat, and several leading officials uh, in the District of Columbia uh, were completely unaware of that. Um, and you know, as I've said, if if we were in a legislative hearing about crime, uh, and the police chief was unaware uh, of the murder rate, that would be wildly unacceptable. And I don't think that police chief would have a job the next day. Um, but that is that is the world of climate. That is not unique to the District of Columbia. I, you know, I don't think it's fair to to paint this just as a problem in the District. This is happening all over, uh, with with mayors and government officials all over. Um, you know, you've you've got to know this data because this is central. And and if we don't know the data and the performance, then what are we doing?
1: But Sam, you have to get the data from the utilities, and they're the ones that hold it hostage. So we also need to make sure that utilities are are able to and are really encouraged and forced to share data, whether it's with their consumers or with the cities that they serve. But the, the utilities are, are the folks that have the data. So I think that that's, that's part of the issue.
2: Totally agree. But what I would say is if they're not giving up the data, scream bloody murder. And if they're not, then hold those public officials accountable and get new ones that will. Um, and we know the political reality in cities across the country is that, you know, utilities tend to have uh, considerable sway uh, politically. Um, and so, again, when, you know, when I say this is, is the most important issue, uh, you know, for any city, you know, the first fight might well be getting that data. Um, and if they're not getting the data, there should be massive public fights and political fights over this.
3: But why isn't it just impossible, Sam? Like, I mean, look, I mean, you had a very close relationship with the mayor. That's why we were able to do what we did in D.C. It clearly wasn't enough, as you've admitted yourself. It took us almost two years to get workable data out of Pepco, even though they had signed up to the green button program under the Obama administration. I mean, I I, I mean, I think we had probably the smartest team in the country working on it. At some point, I mean, don't you just think that this is just too hard and the city will just say... Screw it! Like I, we're not going to spend this much political capital on this.
2: I, I don't. I hope you're not serious because, of course, it's not too hard. I mean, the truth is, yes, it was. I mean, that was the most kind of difficult thing I've ever done professionally was to get the data that Pepco already had. I mean, that was a massive. I think we figured out that it was something like hundreds of meetings uh, and conference calls required to get this data that was ours um, for our government facilities, but we did get it. And now you can go to a website, buildsmartdc.com, and see near real time data for all of those facilities. And it has made enormous impact to government facilities in the district uh, and has, you know, led to, you know, I think their 10% uh, reduction across the board. There's no reason why, you know, that fight shouldn't happen in cities all over the country. Um, And, uh, you know, I, I don't think we should accept anything less than, you know, at least taking that first step. And I do think, you know, that first step is so foundational because once you have that information, um, then accountability becomes, uh, you know, a real thing. And, and then, you know, just like any endeavor that human beings make, you know, when you have feedback about performance, things, things tend to change and they tend
0: to change for the better. I mean, what we're talking about is a much broader issue across the industry. For so long, people have been willing to accept the lack of actual data, performance data, in the efficiency industry, we've relied on very complicated modeling uh, to make regulators and utilities feel good about energy savings. And when you actually go and revisit progress, the energy efficiency programs that we've had in place for a long time haven't actually been that great. Uh, the same thing with buying and selling RECs, right? It, it's a people feel good about purchasing renewable energy credits. Uh, but when you actually look at the REC market, they're not often supporting new projects. And you're using RECs as a proxy for buying actual renewable electrons and supporting new projects. So this is a much bigger problem across the industry. It's not unique to cities and i think what you're pointing to sam is one of the most fundamental challenges that this industry faces we need more data and we actually have to show that this progress is real and we just can't rely on press releases anymore because we've done that for far too long
2: yeah and i think that you know the as you say we've been we've been at this for a while and still don't have the data but we've you know as as you point out we've had um you know quite a few models and white papers written. Uh, And I think that, you know, nobody's better at writing white papers uh, than the climate and energy efficiency world. You know, on that, you know, A plus. I think there's a Uh, saying like,
0: (laughs) if the number of projects developed equaled the number of white papers written in the efficiency industry, we would have solved the problem by now, something like that. There are a lot of white papers, is my point.
2: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And folks, you know, I feel like the PowerPoint presentations are, you know, better and better at each conference you go to, um, you know, everybody's got a good deck. Um, I've got a good deck that I'm happy about, but you know, what's next? Um, you know, and it's how are we tracking against these white papers and, you know, not to pick on San Francisco cause there, I think they're doing some, some, some very good things there, but you know, they had a renewable energy task force in 2011 that had, you know, their white paper is just as good today as it was then, you know, I'd say it's 80% of what you do today. Um, so what are we talking about? How are they doing towards that goal? And, if, you know, you look at San Francisco, energy consumption's up. Um, you know, solar is still less than, I think, 2% of, um, of load there. Um, we don't need any new white papers. I think they had 40 recommendations. Do all of those recommendations. Um, and then see what's, see what's happening and see what's working and what's not working. And, you know, again, to just underscore, energy efficiency is so freaking hard. Um, it, it does not um, work according to, you know, rational economic behavior. If it did, everybody would be doing it. You know, there's 30% ROI uh, on efficiency solutions for days. Um, and yet, you know, buildings, um, ha- have not, uh, deployed, um, at nearly at the rate you'd think they would have. Um, and so, you know, that's why cities I think are such unique actors and unique laboratories here because you can see, you know, at a more granular, um, more granular and and micro level, what's working and what's not. And, and I think, you know, we'll keep at it and keep, you know, keep iterating with business models and keep iterating with government incentive programs. And, you know, there's no other choice. We have to figure this out. Again, it's the greatest challenge of this generation. What else are we going to do? We have to figure this out.
0: So given all this, how should we think about these city commitments to renewable energy, to carbon reductions? When we start reading these new press releases that come out, and you see mayors making these bold proclamations, how should folks be reading into it and what can the industry do to hold them accountable to the targets that they're setting?
2: I, I think that you know one of the things that I've heard and I've actually heard I mean, m- multiple people say almost the exact same thing to me um, I'd say in fact 90% of what I've heard about the article has been folks saying thank gosh somebody finally wrote that, or I wish I'd written that. I will say most of those people said, but I couldn't have because I'm not willing to say that publicly. Um, and that's a commentary in and of itself. And it speaks to what I've heard from folks that have been uh, pissed off with me, which is you know don't kind of ruin the narrative. Um, and you know that, that is just wildly unacceptable uh, because there is no, no other issue that cities deal with where the narrative, uh, is, is the most important thing. You know, that's not on kitchen c- table issues like, you know, schools and jobs and crime. Um, you know, we don't really care, uh, you know, what the, what the strategy looks like as long as we're getting, you know, the result. um, and the same, you know, has to be the same with climate. Um, you know, we can't just say the right things and, and hold the right press conferences and then call it a day. Um, and so, you know, this idea of, of better data and more accountability, you know, I, I do think is um, absolutely foundational to the next step, which is, you know, creating, you know, the political muscle, um, you know, that makes uh, the climate challenge more important uh, than the construction of, you know, a, a city's new ballpark. Um, and, um, you know, I think getting from here to there is actually you know, not all that complicated as Jigger says. I mean, we, we have all the tools and the technology um, in place. Um, I think, you know, we, we just need to start to activate and, and to deploy those things um, and to just not, you know, to, to not make this look uh, easier than it is. Um, you know, this is about more than, you know, putting the, you know, beach shares together on, on Miami beach. This is about, you know, uh, you know, holding folks accountable and, um you know, and demanding they, they do these things that we need them to do, and if not, um, you know, get new folks in place. Um, but what, you know, what we haven't had at this point, um, and what I would almost take as a sign of progress, is the first time that a mayor um, is sent out of office because they weren't doing something on climate change will be a great day, because it'll mean we're finally actually taking this stuff seriously. But right now, it's just, you know, everybody's a winner. Everybody's leading. You know, nobody's ever doing something we wish... Uh, they weren't doing you know, and I think um you know that's that's that 's not where we need to be. you know this is not early days; this is two thousand and seventeen. you know lots of cities are like d c they're five years into their plan they're ten years into their plan, um, and so you know it's time to say, how are we doing uh tracking against those plans um, and if things aren't going well, uh, we need to make big changes, and we might need new folks in place um and and make changes and and get to where we need to go because there's no doubt that we all agree. Um, you know that the North Star, um, you know, of 100% renewables uh, or whatever it might be, um, you know, is is something that we that we need to track towards. Um, but but now it's time to to look in the mirror and see how things are actually actually
0: going. Well, let's hope that this is a turning point in the conversation, and we're going to get a lot more accountability because uh, we're past the point of no return now, and we have no other choice. That's Sam Brooks. He's managing director at Clear Rock. He is the former director of the DC Government Sustainability Division. He wrote a fantastic op-ed at GTM that you can read. We'll link to it in the show notes. Sam, thanks a lot. This was interesting.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: We are going to take a quick break and spend a minute to talk about our sponsor, Mission Solar Energy. You know, America's booming solar industry now employs over 260,000 people. That is an incredible number, and it's outpacing every other energy sector. And Mission Solar is one of those proud employers. The company's 260-megawatt solar manufacturing facility supports local U.S. production, engineering, and office jobs right in San Antonio, Texas, directly contributing to America's burgeoning clean energy economy. Mission Solar's Texas-based location makes it easier to fulfill the needs of domestic developers, keeping your projects moving and on schedule. And Mission Solar's in-house research and development laboratory keeps the company innovating and producing the highest quality modules possible. Solar Power International is coming right up in Las Vegas from September 10th through the 13th. Go and meet the Mission Solar team there. They're going to be at booth 3975, and uh, you can go talk to them about all their products. And for those who aren't at the event, check out Mission Solar's modules at missionsolar.com. Thanks for sponsoring the show, Mission. We're moving on to NRG now. We've covered the saga of that company a lot over the years, and this week brought yet another chapter in the independent power provider's rapid push into renewables and just as rapid exit. So NRG is one of the largest independent power producers in the country with more than 45 gigawatts of power plants. And if you'll remember, under former CEO David Crane, NRG dashed into rooftop solar, EV charging, portable power, and of course large-scale renewables development as part of this effort to remake the company and move it away from fossil fuels. But investors didn't like his plan, and with the stock under pressure, Crane was forced out and NRG made plans to spin off many of its green assets. For background on that, we've covered it a lot. Revisit our February 6th show with Crane. He provides a lot of insight. So fast forward to the last year, NRG has been strong in utility-scale renewables. It owns a few gigawatts of projects, um, a stake in NRG Yield, its Yield Co. It bought up to 1,500 megawatts of Sun Edison projects late last year. But now that business is being sold off too. NRG CEO Mauricio Gutierrez held an investor call yesterday and explained that between 50 to 100% of the company's renewables projects will be put on the market, part of a plan to free up lots of cash for impatient investors. It's pretty remarkable to think about how much NRG has evolved over the last four years. What a crazy twist in turn. So Jigger, I feel like I can anticipate your reaction to this news. I told you so. <laughs>
3: well, you know, I, it, what's, I'll actually say it a little bit differently because NRG needs to raise cash. And the most reliable way to raise cash right now, the most liquid part of their portfolio is renewables. Right. So they're basically making the decision to, to sell out the renewables not because it's a bad investment but because it's a great investment and and the external investors who might give them additional cash want the renewables they don't
0: want the other stuff that they're doing yes i think that's actually important when they they held this call a lot of people were asking around the office like wait does this mean that NRG wants to get rid of its renewables business entirely and it was pretty clear that uh Mauricio said You know, if we're going to set a certain financial expectations for future projects after 29 when this restructuring plan is executed, but we need cash quickly and these renewables projects are easy to get rid of, which again speaks to the liquidity of selling off projects and the attractiveness of the space. So, you know, you can look at it in a positive lens. And I think long term, it's not. NRG is not saying it's getting entirely out of the renewables business. What's interesting is that they did say everything's on the table, though. It's not just the projects themselves; it's the potentially the development business itself, and of course the entire stake in NRG Yield. Um, they they could put everything on on the market. So this is a, a bit of a I wouldn't call it a fire sale, but it's a it's a it's a yard sale of sorts because they're trying to free up as much cash as possible over the next. Three years for investors.
3: So the interesting thing about this is, from a timing perspective, you know they've been doing this actively for the better part of six to nine weeks. Um, you know this was the worst kept secret at the Wea show. Um, you know where everybody was talking about the fact that Energy's assets were for sale, but this is the first time that they announced it. So I thought it was a little bit interesting to see how undisciplined they were on. On the announcement process, because, you know, usually you'd want to like to let everyone know at the same time. And the fact that they sort of let this leak, um, you know, before they actually made the presentation to investors seems, you know, sort of a lack of discipline on their part.
0: Well, there were some anonymous sources within NRG who had informed the New York Times back in April that this was potentially coming. You know, they had a board shakeup in the spring. They got a couple of new board members who were skeptical of the renewables business. Um, you know, a couple hedge funds, some major investors were pressuring NRG to shed its renewables business and free up cash. So this had been on the table For a while. And there were anonymous sources within the company that had uh, reached out to the New York Times. Go figure. The Times is uh, yet again getting another scoop from anonymous sources. But uh, we've been sort of expecting this for a while, but no one knew exactly how it would materialize. And then, as you said, in the in the recent weeks, projects have started hitting the market and people realize that they were selling off a lot, a lot of their portfolio.
1: Yeah, I'm watching the distributed side because NRG has a really strong um, business on uh, demand response, distributed energy reliability services, and they run Reliant, you know, which is an energy management retail provider in Texas. So um, I'm kind of watching that side because they've been really strong there and have have a presence in uh, the wholesale markets, um, not just for their generators, but also for this, um, for demand response and other services.
3: I I did find it fascinating that like that um, the CEO talked about how this entire restructuring plan would help it beat the all-in average wholesale p- cost of power by their peers by ten dollars a kilowatt. Yeah,
0: ten bucks a kilowatt. Yeah. But that
3: I mean, just just saying that seems shockingly ignorant, right? I mean, why? Like, well, part of what we've been saying is that the five-year extension of the solar and wind tax credit will make the wholesale markets basically, you know, like bankrupt, right? That is what when you put that much zero variable cost power onto the grid by 2022 or so, you're going to find that the wholesale markets will actually have to be completely restructured from top to bottom. And you're seeing a lot of people saying that now, right? So, so why would your overall goal for this entire restructuring be to get back into the same business that David Crane
0: built back in 2003? I think the the funniest piece of analysis I saw was on Twitter when Travis Hoyum of The Motley Fool said, um, NRG is restructuring itself to be an independent power producer circa 1985.
3: Yeah. So. I mean, it's just I mean, <laughs> I agree with Catherine that 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 the doubling down in the retail and the CNI space is a really smart move on their part. But I just think that this like Genon, for instance, right? I mean, David Crane was CEO when they acquired Genon. He already had a thesis that these assets were going to become worthless. He bought them anyway. And guess what? They did basically become worthless. And so like, it's just like, I don't know that this was complicated as much as entirely predictable. And the fact that they had a visionary CEO who predicted the failure of some of these assets, who then didn't actually right size the assets of NRG such that they would benefit from his his prognostications. Just it just feels like the oil and gas industry conversation we had a few you know episodes yeah. But ago.
0: this is uh, this is what's winning the day. Short termism. Nobody gives a damn about a renew- long term renewable strategy. These investors are not worried about long term turmoil in the wholesale markets. They want cash right now over the next few years, and they put a lot of pressure on NRG. To implement this plan, the board was entirely, um, you know, supportive of the plan. They had to rush it through since February because of all this pressure. Like nobody gives a damn about that stuff. They're not thinking about any of these major restructurings in the markets themselves. They just want cash. Um, so I think that this is uh, just a, a short-termism problem on the behalf of investors
3: the other angle i would take on this is you know there's been a big shakeup at edison energy as well those are the guys who bought socor and you know they're replacing a lot of their top people and what they're basically saying is that this business unit isn't performing as they thought it would and so they're going to restructure um the business And, and and then it also goes to the fact that like you know i guess the question is do you think that edison energy and nrg can actually succeed in, in the retail space. I mean, do you think they actually have what it takes to do more than just power trading on the wholesale markets?
1: Yeah, this is a really tough space. There is a ton of churn. So you saw that iTron uh, is buying Converge, Enel is going to buy Enernoc. I mean, these are companies that are really looking to the distribution side. And the And the question is, who's going to really succeed? Or do they all have different models that will succeed? But Definitely, peop- The distributed side is really um, has really created a lot of churn for those that are that are large players.
0: This is such a fascinating like question, and I think it's probably going to be the subject of conversation for a future episode because we could talk about this for a half an hour. Um, you know, NRG is is continuing to focus on. C&I customers and the retail side and fixed energy management is important. Um, Edison International did the same thing. And it's Edison Edison Energy, uh, you know, last year, it started making all these investments. And it, it took this kitchen sink approach, right? It wanted to procure renewables for customers. It wanted to develop renewables. It wanted to implement efficiency projects. It wanted to do billing management, um, GE is attempted to do the same thing with its uh, current business that has intelligent lighting, solar, battery storage. And both of these companies have faced serious troubles because it turns out that customers want plain vanilla offerings. And the the kitchen sink approach where you kind of throw all these really interesting dynamic offerings together – isn't actually materializing in the marketplace. It's not what customers are, are asking for, and the business is really hard. So you see companies like Enel or NRG or Edison International, uh, GE. There's probably five other interesting players, Southern Company. Duke. Like Duke, exactly. These companies talk a big game about these dynamic all-in offerings, but I, I'm not seeing the activity to live up to the hype yet. And what we're seeing with Edison Energy and GE is, uh, I think, a a market rationalization. I agree. That's a pretty good place to leave it. Again, I think we'll bookmark that one for a future conversation. Uh, Our final bit of news comes from the storage industry where some of the top players are warming up for a race to dominate the world of utility-scale batteries. This week, AES and Siemens partnered up to create a a new joint storage development business called Fluence. AES is a long-time leader in storage development and system design, and Siemens is, of course, a power plant engineering behemoth. And this is uh, yet more evidence that the biggest energy companies in the world are going all in on storage. Before we talk about this, a word of disclosure. Of course, AES Energy Storage was a launch sponsor of our other podcast, The Interchange, and... You may have heard those ads when we cross-posted a couple of episodes. I just want to make it clear that our decision to cover this news so close to that sponsorship is in no way influenced by AES. Our conversations are dictated purely by editorial standards, and sponsors don't dictate what we cover or how we cover it. So with that said, let's talk about the news and why this deal matters. Catherine, I know you got the lowdown from some of the folks at AES, what are they saying about this joint venture?
1: Yeah, I was lucky enough to be able to speak with Praveen Kathpal, who's the vice president, and John Zorancic, who is the president of AES Energy Storage. And I also talked with Dan Wishnick of Siemens, who's leading the effort for that team. So it was um, it's pretty amazing because these are two Fortune 200 companies that have a great deal of experience in very different ways that t- combined really shows a serious, I mean, this is a serious venture. For storage, and this really shows that, as uh, John Zoranski said, you can't hold back the ocean. Um, and basically, what they're able to combine is AES's um, ability to be a—you know—they're really an independent power producer behemoth. They have been—they have been operating utilities before, so they understand that side of the business, and they have also been gaining a lot of experience in proof of concept and in different value streams and different use cases for energy storage. And, you know, to wit, they just built 100 megawatts in six months in Southern California. So they have all those proof points, they have all the operational data, and then Siemens has relationships all over the world. There is not a major utility that they don't have a relationship with in the world. Um, They also surprisingly have about 30 storage projects in the ground as well. So they have some experience with that, but the combination of all of these relationships with the experience on the ground, I think is going to really make a difference in scaling storage and not just for these guys, but for everybody, because this really just opens up the market and creates more space for everyone.
3: Yeah. This is going to be a really interesting thing to watch. Um, Basically Siemens and GE like to sell hardware to um their customers which are generally utility companies who pay cash. Um you know like I think the alternative view would have been that that um the AESs of the world partner up with uh the Sunruns or the Vivins or the solar cities of the world and actually use their extraordinary sales people to sell retail. Um and I think these two business models will collide um against each other and
0: we'll see which one ultimately succeeds in getting the most volume out the door. I don't see AES moving toward a retail storage business.
1: No, it's going to be utility scale and CNI, not residential. And Siemens does have that sales force. They have a utility sales force that's pretty strong globally. And I think that's what they're going to end up focusing on.
3: Oh, I agree. Siemens is a great sales force, but so does like Schneider Electric. But neither of them have been successful at really selling solar, for instance. And so... I wonder whether you know, Siemens in particular has sold a tremendous amount of building automation systems into CNI projects. And so like, I'm very excited about seeing this deal because I think it means very big and good things for the energy storage space. But I'm cautiously like, sort of viewing the partnership around whether this will really work outside of um, utility purchases of, um, of storage.
0: I guess we'll see, but boy what a tale of two stories, right? We just talked about NRG another independent power producer that's shedding, you know, every vestige of of renewables and AES acquired uh S Power, the top one of the top storage developers in the one of the top solar developers in the US and has now you know developed this um joint venture with Siemens to build storage projects around the world. So just extraordinary differences in the strategies of these two independent power producers.
1: I also think we need to look at this different than we look at solar and the way solar works and the growth of solar. I mean, John was telling me that he can find an economic case for energy storage anywhere anywhere. And they're all different. They're they all have different needs. They have different use cases. Um, they have different technologies. See, these guys are technology neutral as as far as it goes with chemistry. You know, they 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 they're chemistry neutral on what they use for their storage medium. Um, it's really the project development and operation that they're going to be focused on. And he says you can make it work anywhere, and it does so many different things. Solar does one thing, and you can you can use it very smartly. But it really, I feel like it's a completely Different set of use cases and a different business model.
0: Well, they're starting to talk about hybrid units now, and and they want to develop more co-located projects, and you know, uh, to, to use solar as a more dynamic res- resource. So I, I can foresee AES starting to blend together its storage unit with its solar development unit. And if, if you if you look through the the uh, press release from AES and Siemens, they mentioned pretty much every application that you could you could think of, you know, microgrid and islanding uh, development, renewable hybrid projects, black start, peak shaving, um, ancillary services, flexible peaking capacity, you know, frequency regulation, transmission and distribution reliability, non-wires alternatives to infrastructure development. They want to do it all. And what they're saying uh, implicitly is that they think they have a solution where they can pretty much match any utility need with batteries and you know now they're looking at 8 to 10 hour duration lithium ion storage so they're calling that long duration storage in the context of lithium ion and and they're just saying hey we can pretty much identify any problem that you might have and and fix it and solve it with lithium ion batteries i have no doubt in my
3: mind that these guys believe that and it's true, right? My point is that going to a building owner and convincing them to put storage behind their meter is something really easy to do if they save money on demand charge savings. If you then have to go to the electric utility company and ask for the five other value propositions to be paid for, which AES is quite good at, then it makes it harder for folks to do, right? And so my point is simply that the solar guys are really just going to go directly to CNI i customers, combine solar plus storage, and say, you have the 30% tax credit on storage. We're going to save you on demand charges. So if the big, bad utility company changes the rate tariffs such that they raise demand charges, you're protected. Whereas the AES and Siemens of the world are going to have very complex conversations with utility companies around solving all those complex problems you discussed, Stephen. And I'm not sure the utility companies are even going to open the door for their you know, their favorite friends over at Siemens and AES.
1: Well, I think a lot of what they're doing speaks to the need to move toward flexibility. And so that's really what they're focused on. And no, Stephen, you listed 100 different use cases and different um, value streams. That all speaks to flexibility. And if you can monetize that flexibility and that in and of itself becomes, Um, you know, has it has a means of compensation, whether it's on the wholesale or the retail side, that's when you're going to be able to get make the business case work. And Jigger, I would just add that um, people can't have not been able to take a 30% tax credit for any storage project unless they've gotten a private letter ruling from the IRS. So that's not a real thing until we get some of those rules ironed out. Um, So that in and of itself doesn't make it cost effective.
0: All right, let's wrap up the show. We'll tell our listeners something they may not know. And I'm going to turn to you first, Catherine. What's your story?
1: Oh, I'm going to get very wonky on... No. Um, yeah. <laughs> this is on congressional process. So the National Defense Authorization Act, um, plus the appropriations bill, are passed every year to fund the Department of Defense and military construction. So it's on the floor today in the House of Representatives. It'll be on the floor probably next week in the Senate, um, the NDAA, it's called, for FY 2018. And this is just another way in which uh, we're seeing our government starting to slide back on climate change, because they're basically, there's an amendment that has been made in order, it's going to be put in on block in the, you know, on the floor. So there's not like a specific vote on this amendment. But it strikes the DoD recognition that climate change is a direct threat to national security and that it impacts the stability of the world. And, um, you know, it's they're trying to put the genie back in the bottle, they're trying to say, no, DoD. Now you need to say that it actually doesn't have a negative impact on the world and on our national security. I just think it's going to be really hard to walk that back, but that's what they're going to be doing on the House bill. So what's interesting, what's going to be interesting to see is how those 24 Republican members of the Climate Solutions Caucus, um, you know, are able to kind of message that because they're not going to take a vote, I don't think, on this specific amendment. They're just going to have to take a vote on the whole bill, and I assume they'll all vote for it. Um, but it's a, just another way that Congress is trying to roll back on climate.
0: Oh, wild. Jigger. what's your story?
3: Um, well, so I was really intrigued by a press release that was put out by Indian Oil and Landsatech uh, about the intent to construct the world's first refinery off gas to bioethanol production facility in India. Um, Landsatech, if you guys know, is a carbon recycling company. So they actually sort of do a version of CCS. Um, and so it's a it, it's, it's company we studied heavily when I was at the Carbon War Room. Um, they do seem like they work better than most other folks. And the, the ethanol to ethene um, production that they have really does, you know, give them very high revenues by which to maintain the process. And so this is roughly a 40 million liter plant, um, which will have a cost of around 55 million bucks. And, you know, it, it'll, it'll
0: be interesting to see um, to see how many of these plants can get built. Probably a topic we should cover more. We've had a few listeners asking us to cover that technology. A couple things from me. First up, this week we talked to Mark Jacobson about his 100% renewable energy research on the interchange, had a long conversation and walked through the criticisms of his research and had him defend his work. And it's a really good conversation. And we're also going to have Christopher Clack, who was the lead author on the... uh, the the report rebutting many of jacobson's assertions so we will uh have that in the coming weeks and i just recommend people check that out if you are not sick of that debate uh i think there's some some really interesting insight in there from professor jacobson and secondly i saw yesterday that mark zuckerberg was visiting the bakken shale fields and he blogged about it on facebook he's been uh, posting about his travels around the country Many people are speculating about a potential run for president, wondering why he's doing all this and taking these extraordinary photo opportunities. But uh, he had this very long post about the people, you know, what what causes volatility in communities that rely on resource extraction. And he talked a little bit about climate change. He talked about what he learned about um, natural gas and oil fracking. And it was uh, it was kind of interesting. Good read. If you want to check out his own Facebook page, you can read about his experience at the Bakken Shale fields. and one wonders if he's actually going to run for president. It seems that way. That's it, folks. Um, you know, you can find us on the usual channels. You're listening to this podcast now, so you know find us there. Listen to our back catalog. send our episodes to your friends and colleagues. Give us a rating and review on iTunes. The vast majority of our listens still come through iTunes, and so providing a rating or a review really does help us find new listeners. We appreciate those who have given one in the past. Contact us at podcasts at greentechmedia.com. We get a huge amount of email, so it can be hard to respond to everyone, but uh, we want to hear your show ideas. This was a lot of fun. We will catch you all next week with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of GreentechMedia.com.